listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, I love to worship with you. I love to meet new friends each week. These are exciting days uh, for us as a church family. And uh, again, I want to welcome each of you. Especially if uh, you, this is your first time to worship with us, hope that you'll uh, take the time to stop out here in the uh, Connection Center. Uh, there's a place for you to grab some information about our various ministries as it uh, may pertain to your family and would love to get better acquainted with you. But uh, right now, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are continuing our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Uh, Over the past few weeks, we've been in some pretty choppy waters, uh, to say the least. Uh, It's become increasingly clear that the Corinthian believers uh, were struggling uh, to cast off the things of this world. Uh, They had, uh, these of course, fairly new believers, all of them. The Apostle Paul planted the church at Corinth, uh, most likely somewhere in the neighborhood of three years prior to uh, his writing this letter. And so, Uh, They were struggling, particularly in the area of sexual immorality, Um, just in those few chapters. I mean, we cover everything from uh, incest and church discipline and, um, you know, engaging the services of uh, temple prostitutes and everything in between, I suppose. Uh, And so Paul is writing to correct the compromise in their midst. Now, uh, admittedly, 1 Corinthians is some tough sledding. I was telling Jace this morning over in the office, I said, typically whenever I... uh, I start a series, I start planning a series of messages, I will go to some well-respected teachers that I have uh, learned from, continue to learn from, all those things, and I like to see kind of how they lay out the book. That's, it's called kind of the skeleton of, of a sermon series, and lo and behold, I discovered that most of those people have never done a series through 1 Corinthians, and I'm like, well... Suppose we're just going to dive off into the deep end, um, but uh, certainly I can uh, learn and glean. But uh, few of them have actually done a series through First Corinthians. We know that this is a church that has issues, uh, and while there is a certain cultural context found here, we know that that's important to us. Uh, we know there's also some strong application to where we are uh, in the year 2021. And now some of you will remember when Facebook first became popular. About 15 years ago, can you believe that? I had just gotten a MySpace, and then I was told, all the cool kids are going to Facebook now. Well, now Facebook is like for all the old people, right? I mean, that's what, I mean, it's like, what do you got to be on TikTok and all this other stuff? I can't keep up with it all. I just, I finally just kind of found my sweet spot, and that's kind of where I stay, and I don't spend much time there, to be honest with you. Uh, But you might remember that uh, in those early days, at least, I think it's still this way, Uh, One of the categories that was found in an individual's profile as you were setting up your profile was your relationship status. Remember that? Relationship status. Uh, In fact, it even became popular uh, to declare a change in relationship status as Facebook official. I remember times having conversations with Christy and we're like, are are those two dating? Or You go look, lo and behold, it says right here, Facebook official. You know, I even had a few friends who I, I felt like their relationship status changed like every other day, you know. I mean, it was just incredible. And, and that's a good thing. That, that's a good thing. Uh, we got some people uh, in our church family whose relationship status has changed in the last 48 hours even. Uh, Lauren Gibson, where are you? She may not be here, but anyway, 
Uh, she's newly engaged uh, to uh, the guy that will be our first pastoral resident. He should be on the field in the middle of June. So we're celebrating with them. So her relationship status has changed. I mean, just in a day or two. It's amazing how that happens, right? Um, but you also might remember uh, that one of the categories that could be chosen, at least in those early days of social media, was it's complicated. You ever see one of those? I mean, it wasn't just married, single, widow. I mean, there's all these, but it's complicated. Well, I'm here to tell you, regardless of your relationship status today, it's complicated, okay? It just is. Relationships are hard. I mean, you think about it. You're talking about a sinful human being, right? And then when you put a sinful human being with another sinful human being in close proximity, regardless of their relationship, you, you got a recipe for some complicated stuff, Right? We're just broken, sinful people in need of the grace of God every day in our lives. And so we recognize today that it's complicated. Now this morning, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to cover the rest of chapter 7 today. So you're going to have to bear with me a little bit. We're going to read from uh, verse number 6. We went through verse 5 last week. Verse 6 through the end of the chapter. So I hope that you'll follow along. If you don't have a copy of God's Word close by, you should be able to follow along on the screen. Paul writes... Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge. And he says parenthetically, not I, but the Lord... The wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11 says, But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Verse 17 kind of shifts gears a little bit, and he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Are you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. 
Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is a plea to adopt and focus on eternal things. Then verse 32, it says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So when he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment... She is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So as I said, it's complicated. (laughs) It's complicated. Again, we don't typically cover this much ground uh, as we make our way through uh, a book of the Bible as we are here in 1 Corinthians, but what I want to do today is I want to take kind of a wide-angle view Uh, of some of the things that Paul addresses here in the remainder of chapter 7 as it relates to our relationships. And he covers a lot of things here. Uh, We're going to consider his teaching in three areas, really. Singleness, divorce, and marriage. Singleness, divorce, and marriage. Let's first consider singleness and the gift of God. Singleness and the gift of God. Now, the world around us thinks that the biblical teaching of celibacy in singleness is to somehow condemn singles to an incomplete life. You're an incomplete person. You can't possibly be satisfied to live a celibate single life. That's the world's perspective. And and sometimes under the pressure of that point of view, uh, many who are single uh, are left to feel a deep restlessness and dissatisfaction with where they are in life. We find contentment hard to come by. Let's face it, there are times when the church doesn't help much either. While the world pressures you to change your sexual ethics uh, while you're single, the church sometimes pressures you to marry as soon as possible. So many times, uh, our assumptions presuppose uh, that married life is the, uh, the all-to-end-all kind of thing. That's, that's the ultimate goal for everyone, should be the ultimate goal for everyone. And we fail many times to remember uh, the singles in our midst altogether. Uh, you can be left with a distinct imp- impression somehow that a single person in the church, uh, that you are somehow to uh, give all of your attention, your energy, your passions to uh, finding your uh, life's mate. 
but if you're really going to belong, then you need to get married as, as soon as humanly possible. And I just want to pause for a moment and say this. If you have ever at any time, whether it be in our church, uh, certainly in our church or any other church for that matter, if as a single person you've ever been made to feel like you're somehow second rate uh, or you are, are a fifth wheel uh, or you don't belong, uh, then I, I would just seek your forgiveness in that because you are highly valued and your place within the family of God is critically important. And I recognize this morning in a room this size, this many people, that some of you are single, and, and you're single for different reasons. Okay, maybe you're young and you're hoping. Uh, your desire is to someday be married. I fully understand that. Uh, others of you are single because of divorce, perhaps. Uh, some of you maybe have, have lost a spouse, and so you're a widow or a widower. Uh, a lot of different reasons why people uh, are single. But we want you to know how important you are to this church family. Uh, and that... Uh, even in your singleness, uh, you may feel like uh, a, a kind of a sense of discontentment. Uh, you may feel like I really want to be at another place in my life right now. Uh, we, we have a word to you today, and I hope that you will, you will hang with us for these next few moments. But Paul affirms and he commends singleness here. He is anxious that we see clearly the, the careful balance of his argument. Now, notice that it is not a command. According to verse number 6, singleness is not obligatory. And remember, the reason he is saying that is because of, of some of these hardliners. Remember the two extremes that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks as it relates to, 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 to sexual intimacy and those sorts of things? There were those who were saying, well, if we're going to be holy, if we're going to live righteous lives, then we just shun that altogether. And so in their mind, singleness was some sort of virtue that should be sought after. Well, that's not, that's not what Paul is saying, and he understands here that he kind of runs the risk of sending that message in a way. That is not what Paul is teaching here, that you are somehow more holy if that's where you are, if that's, if that's where God has you. Notice carefully that Paul locates the difference between those who remain single and those who marry, not in the individuals themselves, per se, but in the gift of God. Isn't that an interesting way to see it? You see that in verse number 7. It says, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So what he is saying essentially is that celibate singleness is a gift of God. And before you rule Paul out altogether, I know what some of you are sitting there thinking, well, that's not a gift that I want. I understand that. But, but understand what he is saying here for a moment. He says it is a gift. Now the word that is translated gift in the, in the ESV here shares the same root as the word that we often translate grace. That kind of changes the meaning. I think it helps us some. Paul is saying that if God in his providence is calling you to a single life, even if that is temporary, he will give you the grace that you will need to find in your singleness satisfaction and contentment and usefulness. In the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace in singleness is the ground of faithfulness and patience as you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There's grace for you in your singleness. Singleness and the gift of God. Let's consider secondly, divorce and the word of God. Now I want to be clear here uh, that uh, there's some danger in trying to form uh, our doctrine from one particular text. 
There are some hermeneutical principles that are critically important to us as we interpret and proclaim the word of God. We want to use the comparative mention principle, for example. And so this subject is addressed in other areas. And so we would want to approach it from a a systematic theology. We also want to approach it from a biblical theology. Uh, That's critically important to us. So don't think you're going to leave here today with some definitive answer on all things related to divorce. And I recognize today, and I want to be crystal clear about this, that this is a very complex issue in many respects. Uh, I recognize in a church like ours, uh, many of you have been impacted by divorce. Whether you lived in a broken home, your parents were divorced, uh, maybe you yourself have experienced divorce, uh, whether you've got family members, some of you, your children have been through divorce, all of those things. And I, I still to this day have not met anybody who said that was an amazing experience. I'd like to do that again. I've never had a couple stand before me preparing for their wedding day and say, well, we're hoping this thing lasts uh, three, four years maybe. We'd be good with that. Nobody enters into a marriage, into a relationship like that, you know, thinking that's just not the way it is. And so um, I recognize this is a a very difficult subject for some of you, and you still are bearing the the scars and some of the things associated uh, with divorce. But I do want you to notice these parenthetical statements here. It can appear at first glance that Paul is kind of saying, uh, when he says, this, this is not I, but the Lord, then you find the opposite down in verse number 12, where he says, I, not the Lord, that he's making some sort of a distinction that, that, that this teaching is less inspired than this teaching. Okay, we don't believe that. What we believe here, and what I think is happening, is the Apostle Paul is, is really quoting, he's kind of summarizing the exact wording, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 10 particularly, uh, as it relates to this subject of divorce. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Paul is paraphrasing uh, the words of Jesus here. Don't separate, don't divorce. If you do, don't remarry or else be reconciled. And he's, he's referencing Jesus' words. This is not I, but the Lord. Uh, in the same way, again, down in verse number 12, he says, not the Lord, but I. And I think what he's doing here is he is spelling out that this is not the expressed, recorded words of Jesus that he's using, but rather his. But what he is not doing is saying, that's inspired, the words of Jesus are inspired. My words are not. As if what he's teaching is just his opinion uh, to be taken, uh, you know, it's optional. That's not what he's saying. In fact, some people would say, well, I've got a red letter copy of the Bible, and it's only the red letters that matter to me. No, it's all inspired. We believe that all of God's word is inspired, not just the, the red letter, the, the words ascribed to Jesus himself. And so that's, that's not what he's saying here. Okay, This is not just simply Paul's opinion. Uh, he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we believe. Uh, this is fully inspired for us. And so we need to make that distinction. And it's important for us to see that because Paul has some challenging things to say here. And we need to know, the Corinthians, of course, needed to know why in the world should they submit to them? Paul wants us to understand that we ought to submit to them because they have the weight and the authority of Christ and his apostle. Uh, And so they carry the authority of the word of God. Now notice carefully Paul's teaching. He says that divorce is not an option to be sort of kept in your back pocket should things get a little tricky along the way. Okay, That's not the way this is to be viewed. Now remember, the Corinthian hardliners, they placed celibacy at the top of the pyramid of virtues. 
They would say, if you can't be celibate, even in your marriage, then you should divorce. This is what was going on culturally there. That's how mixed up they were uh, uh, about sexual intimacy. So the best option for you would be to go ahead and get a divorce. Well, Paul reminds them of Jesus' teaching. So please hear this clearly. Divorce, while sometimes permissible, was never desirable. While sometimes permissible, was never desirable. Instead, they were to stick together, to fight for our marriages. Now, uh, we live in a, a very unusual time in the sense that, um, I mean, you got people today that it's like, I just want to trade her in for a new model. You know, you see somebody across the room that looks better, maybe a little younger, whatever. I mean, just easily dispose of this marriage and jump into another one over there. There is no scriptural basis for that kind of thing. None. Okay? I've had guys try to convince me that there is. There is none. Okay? There is none. And so I want to be clear about that. We're not going to get into all the specifics of, of all of the things related to divorce and remarriage and that kind of thing. But I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. And so let me simply say that I know some of you struggle with, with failure or, again, with pain or with the complicated consequences of, of decisions in your past and all of those sorts of things. And so I would say to you, much like I said to those who are single, maybe there have been times where you've been felt, made to feel like you're second rate because of divorce in your past, then you're put on a shelf somehow and you're less valuable to the family of God, to the kingdom of God. That simply is not true. And if we're going to preach and teach that we believe in the grace of God, then we need to live that out. And we need to understand what that means. That's not to suggest that there aren't consequences for some of our decisions. Uh, but certainly we need to remember, even in the midst of the fallout from messy, broken relationships, Jesus Christ really is enough for us and there's grace for us in him. That is always true. And again, we acknowledge the difficulties related to what Paul is teaching here. We've got to acknowledge those difficulties and the questions that, that the text leaves before us here kind of unanswered in some respects. And so there are other places in Scripture where you can, you can see teaching in this area. But the authoritative teaching of both Jesus and Paul calls us to marital fidelity, to faithfulness. The call to discipleship, it penetrates our marriages, and I hope that you see that today. Speaks to how we live together as husbands and wives, the way we respond and we care for and, and whether we serve and how we serve one another in the bonds of Christian marriage. It's vitally important. And you simply cannot read the Apostle Paul fairly here in this passage and conclude that somehow it's okay to follow Jesus on Sunday and then turn and trample on your marriage vows at home Monday through Saturday. Maybe hard for some of you to hear, but that's the truth. And in our day and in our generation, when it seems so easy and quick and in some respects cheap, and when you don't uh, feel it anymore, I've had people say, well, I just I fell out of love, and I don't even know what all that kind of stuff means, to be honest with you. And again, I know it is incredibly complex. I know that there are issues of abuse, whether that be physical abuse and verbal abuse, emotional abuse. All these things come into play here. I would never suggest or recommend someone stay in, a, in an abusive relationship like that. Now, I will say this, that over 30-some years of pastoral ministry now, I've had both men and women come to me at various times seeking counsel. Uh, and a lot of times it goes like this. Here's this horrible situation that I am now enduring. 
I've discovered unfaithfulness on the part of my spouse, for example, or something like that. And they, they explain these things to me. And what they really want to know is, Pastor, do I have biblical grounds for divorce? That's what they want to know. In many cases, they've already consulted an attorney. In many cases, they already have the paperwork. In many cases, all they're waiting to do is sign it, and they're saying, Pastor, do I have biblical grounds for divorce? And in some cases, I've been left to say, if what you're telling me is true, then I believe, according to Scripture, you do, in fact, have biblical grounds for divorce. But I will always say this. I also believe, as hard as it may be for you to hear this, you also have biblical grounds for forgiveness. Now, I don't say that glibly. I don't say that in a way that would lead someone to think, well, you mean you're saying I should just stay in this incredibly abusive relationship where my life maybe even is in danger? No, that's not what I'm suggesting. I just know that I could give you a rather lengthy list of people who when they sat in my office for one reason or another, I would have said this couple right here has about a 10% chance of making it as a couple. This marriage has about that much chance. That's just my flesh talking just looking at the circumstances, looking at the situation. But I could also give you a rather lengthy list of people who were in that situation who have now been reconciled, their marriage has been restored, and by the grace of God, they are living in at least a reasonably healthy, grace-filled relationship. So please understand um, what Paul is saying here. Don't try to read into too much what Paul is not saying here. Let's consider thirdly, marriage and the gospel of God seems that some of the members of the church of Corinth were already married when one partner in the marriage becomes a Christian and the other remains unconverted in their old paganism. And I recognize some of you have lived this. Maybe that even describes your relationship now. Um, you are in a relationship that we would describe as being unequally yoked. I can't tell you how many couples have sat in my office and the fundamental issue or problem in their relationship is they are not on the same page spiritually. And sometimes it's, it's to such a degree that it is absolutely toxic. And so I recognize the complexities of those kinds of relationships and things. And so Paul is simply saying here uh, that if, if possible... And every circumstance is a little different in this area, but if that unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you and, and, and you can do it in a way that would honor God and you can live out your Christian faith in a way that would, then God can use you, your testimony, your witness uh, to see that spouse come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, I could give you a pretty lengthy list of people who've lived that out. I've seen it multiple times. Um, I've also seen it where kids coming home from RAs and GAs and quoting scriptures and saying, aren't we going to pray before we eat and little stuff like that? Uh, it leads to a person turning to faith in Jesus Christ. That simple witness, that testimony. Uh, and so uh, Paul is just saying here uh, that, that you are not required, uh, once you become a believer, now you're unequally yoked with an unbeliever, that you're required to divorce them. I think you, you can kind of see that teaching here. Uh, and so he's saying there is hope. Uh, this is where Paul ends, with a note of hope, even in the difficult situation he is describing, even when their newfound faith in Jesus brings all sorts of new tensions into that relationship, there's hope. Maybe your quiet prayerfulness, your newfound peace, your lasting joy, even in a stormy and turbulent context, your kindness, your patience with your unbelieving spouse, your witness to the transforming power of grace, maybe your testimony will win them to Christ by his grace. Remember, in every 
Christian marriage particularly, uh, there is, there's three. Paul is calling us to faithfulness in difficult places, but he calls us to remember that Christ is with us to strengthen us even in those difficult places. Now I want us to also, before we close, I want us to notice that uh, as we continue through this seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks to this subject of contentment. This is something that plagues a lot of us, especially here in uh, our Western world, American way of doing things. Uh, we tend to have a desire for more, for different, for better, greener grass, all those sorts of things. And it starts when you're little, generally. Uh, you can remember when you were in elementary school, there were probably some times that you thought to yourself, well, I just can't wait till I'm in middle school, right? Can't wait to get to junior high. And when you're in junior high, you're thinking, man, I can't wait till I get to high school. If every, when I just make it to high school, everything will be better. I'll be one of the cool kids. And you realize, well, that's not everything I thought it was going to be. And so it's like, if I could just graduate and, and then go off to college or start a career or something, then, then I'll, I'll be content. I'll find happy. It's this amazing, it's this pernicious loop, it's called. It's always looking for the next thing. The, always something. It's just this, this, like this unsettledness, this discontentment. And it continues even into relationships many times. And so you can maybe be in a place where you're single right now, and it's like I just have this, this, this discontentment that's just boiling over, and it's consuming me, and I'm, I'm just trying to run ahead of the Lord and make decisions for him and, and all of those sorts of things. And then maybe you're in a marriage, and you're like, if I could just get rid of him, I mean, you know, would you, you know things would be amazing. And it's, it's just this. And so Paul is teaching here, find, find a holy contentment in where you find yourself right now. I mean, we're a multi-generational church. There are people of various ages in this room. You're all at different places. You're all looking forward to things. And so when we're talking about contentment here, we're not talking about just a, a complacency. That's not what we're talking about. Don't ever grow complacent in your relationships. I mean, by the grace of God, I've been married to my sweet wife for almost 32 years now. Some of you well beyond that. You, you know what I'm talking about. But you still have to continue to read and learn and, and grow in your relationship. I don't have it all figured out. I was reading a parenting book just the other day. I'm like, I got three grown kids essentially, but it's that 11 year old, that almost 11 year old that it's like, man, I got to revisit some of this stuff. You know, it's like, uh, you, you've always got to be growing. And so when we're talking about contentment, we're not talking about complacency. Don't be content to just kind of float along. In fact, I tell young couples all the time if you're not willing to roll up your sleeves and put in the hard work of maintaining your marriage, you're destined for some rough weather. It takes work. It takes work. All of our relationships do. Because relationships are just complicated. And I know every one of us, in some form or another, we have some awkward or difficult or maybe even toxic relationship. Maybe it's with a coworker for you. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your neighbor. You have a difficult neighbor. Maybe it's a distant family member. Relationships are just complicated. And the only way we can navigate those complicated relationships is by the grace of God, the help of the Holy Spirit. So I hope you see what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. In fact, Paul is promoting something that's pretty radical when you really stop and look at it. A kind of holy zeal that puts the glory of Jesus Christ above every other concern. He wants a generation of young people at Corinth ready to go and to give their lives in service to Jesus, sold out for his glory and praise and the extension of his kingdom. But he's a realist. 
He knows that if you're married, that may be harder to do. There are some challenges. It's one of the reasons our International Mission Board has programs that, that really are designed for young singles because uh, they do not have some of the, the priority issues related to family life and all those sorts of things. And so they can go and give, give their time, a couple of years, three years, on the mission field while they're, while they're not dealing with family life. Paul is saying there's some freedom in that. It's something to be embraced. It may just be for a season, But use that season for the glory of God. And so the pulse that beats all the way through Paul's message here, and I hope you can see it, is passionate consecration to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And as he puts it in verse number 35, he wants our undivided devotion to the Lord. So regardless of your relationship status today, regardless of how you would describe that this morning, there are all different relationship statuses in this room, I understand. But regardless of your relationship status, my hope and prayer is that you are undivided in your devotion to the Lord. The, the word that he uses there, undivided, it, it's, it's a Greek word. It's a, kind of a fascinating word. It's a compound word. And when you kind of translate it woodenly, we would say, it means something like good sitting beside. Good sitting beside. He wants good sitting beside the Lord from each of us undivided. I'll be honest, one of the unique challenges of ministry is the balance of home life and ministry. Sometimes it's hard. And many times, I have to be honest, I've not gotten it right. I've had to repent of that. You've got to understand, my priorities are, number one, my relationship with the Lord. Number two, then my relationship with my wife. My relationship with my children And then my relationship with my church family as pastor, in that order. Sometimes it's easy to get that kind of mixed up. It becomes complicated. I think you understand what I'm saying today. So my hope and prayer is that each of us can learn by the grace of God to navigate our relationships, but always our chief priority, our chief aim, our, our, our main goal should be to honor and glorify God. And so if you're in a marriage relationship, then I hope and pray that you can join hands with your spouse and together you can make much of Jesus everywhere. If you're single, then you can utilize your relationships, your friendships, your workplace, all those things to make much of Jesus. Even while you long for the day when you do have a marriage partner perhaps. Wherever you find yourself, be determined to make much of Jesus. Paul is essentially saying here he wants us to park our lives beside Jesus Christ and never move from that spot. The weeds, the tall grass, they're going to grow up around the wheels of our lives. And once we pull up beside Jesus Christ, we never move from there. That's what he wants, undivided commitment and devotion and consecration to Jesus because sometimes our relationship status, whether single or divorced or engaged or married or whatever the case may be, it can be complicated. But by God's grace, regardless of your status, you can make much of him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you today that you have created us, designed us, ordained that we be relational people. 
And while some of us may be more introverted than others, I thank you that you have designed us in such a way that we need each other. We need to do life together. We need to live out the relationships that you entrust to us, whether that be as a single person, as married couples, engaged couples. So Lord, regardless of our relationship status, I pray that you would help us to find a holy contentment in whatever season of life we find ourselves. Not a complacency, but a contentment that finds our hope, our identity, not in that relationship status, but our identity in you. Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that we honor and glorify you. Where we need your help, we recognize that it is only in Christ alone that we can live out these relationships for your glory, for the advancement of the gospel. We thank you and praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.